Well, Father, we love you, and we just thank you, God, that you're a good God. And uh, the reality, Lord, that you are in control, even amidst all the chaos that's going on in the world around us, and even in our own backyard. Uh, Lord, I just pray for all the folks in Nice. Lord, I pray for uh, their families, the victims that are... Uh, just the tragedy that's taken place, Lord. I, I've, since I've been born, and, and as much as I know of, of history, I've never seen anything quite like what we're seeing with all these innocent people being uh, just viciously killed. And so, God, we just, we just praise you even amidst of the storm, and we just ask your special hand of blessing over the families that are involved and uh, just that whole situation, Lord. Thank you for being in control. Uh, God, I just pray for all the stuff going on in Dallas and the stuff that, that's supposed to take place tomorrow. Lord, I just pray for all of that, Lord, that you would just shut that down. Uh, Lord, and I pray for uh, whatever may come. Lord, I pray uh, for the first responders who get there. Lord, I just pray that you would give them wisdom and strengthen them to protect our country. God, thank you for giving us men who do, men and women who do protect our country. And uh, Father, help us just to take hold of Romans 13, to to submit to uh, those who are put in authority, knowing good and well, Lord, that you are the one who has placed them there. God, this is not our home, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the promise that you're going to come back. And so we just praise you, and we say, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, all right, guys. Well, uh, yeah, it is, man. It's, it's just been a crazy week. It's been a crazy week for me, for the country, for everything. But uh, it's, it's good to be here with you all. I uh, hope everybody is doing well. Well, guys, last week we talked about Sarah. And if you saw Ken's emails... Just to clarify, we're not talking about Sarah tonight. We're actually talking about Joseph. And also, we didn't meet last night. So if you showed up, we apologize. Uh, be sure to give Ken a hard time as you, you leave. He doesn't, he doesn't make very many mistakes, but uh, when he does, you've got to make sure you get your punches in while you can. So be sure to do that. It'll make me feel better about myself, at least. Uh, so anyway, guys, so this week, like I said, we're talking about Joseph. But let me give you a little recap on uh, last week and even two weeks, because that's going to tie into what we're talking about tonight. So guys, if you recall from two weeks ago, uh, we studied the life of Abraham. And in the life of Abraham, there was something, there's a significant event that God came to Abraham and he promised him three promises. One of which was he was going to promise him a uh, multitude of nations, right? We learned that he was going to give him, he was going to look up into the stars and there would be more suns than the stars in the sky, uh, even more uh, grains in the sand than a seashore. You know, this is the God's promise to Abraham. But if you remember, there's, there's a little catch there, right? All those promises that God gave to Abraham, that there was catches to each of them. And this one in particular was the fact that Sarah was barren. And so Ken talked about that last week, that, that Sarah was barren. And that put a huge wedge in the very promises of God, didn't it? Yeah, right. I mean, it essentially made God's promise what seemed to be impossible. But what we learned last week is that even God, or that God can even work amidst the impossible. That there's nothing, there's nobody that's so broken, that's so incapable that God can't use and work through to bring about His promises. And so, Ken challenged us last week that, man, there is absolutely nothing in our lives. There's nothing that is, that that we're incapable or incompatible, that God can't use us. And so we were challenged last week to, man, to be the person that God has created us, to not allow those to be excuses, but that God can use you and he will use you if you just let him. And so now we come to the life of Joseph. And this is truly what I think, uh, just an all-encompassing, this is the life of Joseph. I wrote this, I said, 
Through the, all, the ups and the da- all the ups and downs of Joseph's life, he faithfully held on to God's promise. He faithfully held on to the very promise that was given to Abraham several centuries ago. Or not several centuries, but several generations ago. He, he held faithfully on to that promise. And he died confidently believing that God's plan was greater than his own. See, Joseph, what we're going to learn tonight is that Joseph's got probably one of the most incredible stories of the entire Bible. You know, of course, we can't hit on all of, the, all of that story because, I mean, there's 14, 13, 14 chapters. Um, but his, his life is just incredible. And his faith is impeccable in each one of the stories. And we're not going to cover it all tonight. But what we're going to do is we are going to cover some of the highlights. But what's unique about, or re- rather not un- unique about um, Joseph, is the fact that he's a lot like Abraham. Is that most of us are familiar with the life of, life of Joseph. You know, we've... We've heard the stories, we've heard a lot about Joseph, but I think what, in a lot of ways, just like Abraham, we've missed some of the significance. You know, as I was studying the life of Joseph, there was two things that really stuck out that hadn't ever stuck out before, because I think we can get really caught up in his story and miss the overall overall picture that's going on in the life of Joseph. And uh, basically what that is, is his crucial role that he plays in the history of Israel. See, Joseph plays a a huge part in the history of Israel. Two things specifically. Really, Joseph is the linchpin, the way that God preserved a people that would eventually fulfill the very promise that God had given. You know, Joseph's life, as we're going to see tonight, if it wasn't for Joseph's life, man, we, we wouldn't be here. Just like Sarah. I mean, all these people that we are, we're studying, I mean, every stinking one of them, if it wasn't for their faith, if it wasn't for their life story and the way that God used them, man, we would be up a creek without a paddle. And it's so unique to see how God used Joseph through the ups and downs of his life and how he stayed faithful to the promise of God and how he died confidently believing that God's plan was greater than his own. And so I think that the most important aspect of Joseph's life, as far as we're concerned, as far as the faith, is found at the end of his life, and which so happens to be uh, the text for tonight. And so guys, if you would, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be in verse 22. Um, that's going to be the main text for t- tonight. But we're also uh, going to be in Genesis, just like every week. We're going to be in Genesis 37 through 50. So uh, we're going to be doing a lot of page flipping, but it's going to be good. Yeah, so Hebrews 11, verse 22. I'm going to read that to you. It says this. It says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus. That is, he prophesied over the Israelites moving out of Egypt and into exile of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, there's really two important things to that passage. There's a whole lot going on in that passage, but there's two things that I want to draw out to you before we jump into life of Joseph. The first one is the fact is this. At the end of Joseph's life, God gave him a vision of the Exodus. God gave Joseph a vision of the Exodus. And it appears, although we really don't know exactly what that vision included, we don't know, what God, we don't know exactly what God said to Joseph, but what we do know is that Joseph knew, based on this vision, that God's promise to Abraham still held true. That there was nothing about God's promise that he uh, was holding back from, that it wasn't going to happen. He firmly believed that what God had promised Abraham still held true. 
and that Egypt was going to be a temporary place, that Egypt was a temporary place for his life, that there's still more to come, that it was just a temporary holding pattern, if you will, for God's specific purposes. And then also that Joseph knew uh, that they were going to go back to the promised land. Again, that Egypt was temporary and that there was a plan to go back to uh, the land of, of promise, right? Back to the land of Canaan where they had come from. And so although he was dying, God, he knew that God would raise someone else up to lead his people out of slavery and back to the land of promise. So Joseph died confidently knowing that God was still working his plan, that he was going to raise up another guy to take his place and was going to take them back from the land of Egypt back into the land of Canaan where the promised land is. And so the second thing is that Joseph gave instructions to have his bones taken back with them. So when they're going back to the land of promise, Joseph's on his deathbed and he says, boys, I'm not, I'm not dying here. You're taking my bones back with you. You know, and for me, it sound, that seems kind of a funny request, don't you think? I mean, he's dying. It's his bones. What does it really matter? But it mattered greatly to Joseph, or else he wouldn't have said it, right? And as we're going to see um, later on tonight, that, man, on our deathbed, some of the most significant aspects, some of the most significant words that we'll ever say show up on our deathbed. Because at that point, there's no reason for us to, uh, you know, be fake or whatever you want to call it that it, he was being as real as could be, and he wanted his bones to be taken back to the land of promise. And here's the reason. Because he understood that Egypt wasn't his final home. Just like us, guys. Egypt was not Joseph's final home. Although he spent the majority of his life living in the land of Egypt, it was not his home. There was something far greater, far better that he wanted, that he wanted his bones it was a legacy thing. He wanted his bones to be placed back in the land of promise. And so he said, man, you're taking my bones back to the land of promise. And although he wasn't going to see the land, he wanted to be buried in the land that God had promised. Remember our definition of faith, right? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. So although he wasn't going to see the land of promise, he wasn't going to get to taste the fruit of the land of promise, if you will, he knew it existed. He knew that God was going to come through on that promise, and he wanted to be there, whether or not he was actually going to be there in, in physical form or not. He wanted his bones to be there. Um, he, Joseph wanted God to finish what he started in his life just under 100 years ago. Joseph is, again, the linchpin that God uses to preserve his people uh, for a, a grander purpose. And so he knew that although he lived his life um, in Egypt and that God was using that for a grander purpose, that, again, it wasn't his home. And Joseph believed that God's promise to his forefathers was real and that he would fulfill it. But now, guys, let's, let's take a look at Joseph's life. How in the world did we get here? How did we get to the end of Joseph's life where we've just unpacked that a little bit? How in the world did we get here? Well, like I mentioned earlier, Joseph's life spans um, from Genesis 37 all the way through 50. You know, it's 13 chapters, so we can't cover it all tonight. But what we want to do, what I want to do is I want to look at the highlights. We're going to skim a thousand-foot view of Joseph's life. And I would challenge you guys that when you're at home, man, to pick up his story and really work through the details of it. Because I can guarantee you that if you can't find a part of your life that's in Joseph's life that he goes through, man, you're, you're doing well. Um, because the whole time I'm reading this thing, I'm going, man, golly, I feel like I'm here. I feel like I'm there. And it's just been so challenging and encouraging. So I encourage you to do that. But again, we can't do that. 
But guys, as we walk through um, Joseph's life, I want you to keep in mind two things. Really, I want you to keep in mind God's activity in Joseph's life. So the things that God's doing surrounding his life. And then also, I want you to recognize Joseph's response. I want you to really focus on Joseph's response because I think what you're going to find is that in Joseph's life, all the way through the ups and downs, what you're going to find is his faithfulness, that he just stayed strong, that he believed that God was going to come through. And so that's what I want you guys to see tonight. Uh, that's, that's kind of where we're at. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 37. That's where we kick off with Joseph's life. Uh, Genesis chapter 37. While you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and, and get us started. So what you're going to find here in the first couple verses of Genesis 37 is that Joseph is the youngest of 12 brothers, right? We've all heard the story there, the coat of men in colors and all that kind of stuff. But Joseph is 17 years old at this point. He's the youngest of, of 12 brothers. But we also learn that Joseph has been identified as the very favorite son of Jacob, who will later be called Israel. So Joseph has been identified as the favorite son and just like any of brothers would do, of course, they become, um, you know, hateful towards Joseph. They hate him because they're jealous. Who wouldn't, right? Who wouldn't be jealous of the fact that their uh, brother is the favorite son of your dad? And so they become jealous of him. And Joseph, or uh, Jacob, makes Joseph a coat of many colors. And so you can imagine that Joseph has got a little bit of a, uh, a swag in his step, if you know what I mean, right? I mean, he's, he's kind of like, Dad's got my, Dad made me this, this coat of many colors, kind of flaunting it in front of his brothers. And so his brothers hated him. But Joseph wasn't scotch-free in this. Because what we learned, too, in, uh, in verses 5 and all the way through the end of verse 11, is that God gives Joseph two dreams, Right? He gives Joseph two dreams. The first one in particular is that Joseph is going to rule over his brothers. And so you can imagine that if, if not only was the fact that he's the favorite son boiling hate in his brothers' hearts, well then for the fact that Joseph is kind of flaunting this reality that God has given him this vision that he's going to be over his brothers and that they're going to bow down to him, I can imagine that that's going to boil, make some even more hate there too. Well then he has another dream. And the other dream is that um, that his entire family is going to actually be bowing down to him, right? And so here Joseph is in this place where he is extremely hated. He's extremely hated by his family, the very people that you would think would never hate somebody, but the reality is, is they hated him for this. They were jealous. Um, and so one day, uh, Joseph is sent out. This is in Genesis, the verses 12 through 36. One day, Joseph is sent out by his dad to go look for his brothers, and what does he find? He comes up to his brothers who are shepherding in the fields. And what, what has his brothers been doing? His brothers have been plotting his death. And if it wasn't for his eldest brother, Reuben, they probably would have killed him because they hated him so much. They probably would have just gone ahead and done it. But Reuben steps in and says, no, you're not going to kill this guy. You're not going to put out, lay a hand on him. And so what did they do? They ended up throwing him into a pit really to leave him uh, there to, to die. And I, I love this part of the text. It actually says, then the brothers sat down and ate lunch. I think, man, these guys were sick. Right? I mean, they, there was some serious stuff going on wrong, wrong with these guys that they threw their brother into a pit to leave him to die. And then they sit down and have lunch. But then the story doesn't end there, right? The story then picks up and all of a sudden you've got these Midianites that are coming down the road and they get the bright idea of, well, let's just sell them into slavery. Let's just be done with them. We don't have to kill them. But we'll let somebody else handle him. And so they sell him into slavery to the Midianites. 
And uh, what we find in verse 36 of chapter 37 is that although that Joseph had uh, been sold into, um, into slavery and he's heading into Egypt, you know, the, let, me, let me reverse this. Let me go back here for just a second. As soon as they had done that, the brothers then begin to plot more, right? So they go back to their dad and they, they had slaughtered a lamb, put blood all over the coat. And they said, well, hey, listen, he'd been killed. He'd been eaten by an animal, <laughs> I mean, you can just imagine, these guys are just wicked. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's just point that out, that these men are wicked. And so Jacob is under the impression that his favorite son has just been eaten alive. But what we find in verse 36, that Joseph is very much alive, that he's actually on his way to Egypt, sold into slavery. And then look in verse, or in chapter 39, skip 38, uh, look in verse 39, and we'll find out here. It says that now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had bought him down there. And so here we have Joseph, who was once the favorite son, you know, plotted against, thrown into a pit, now sold into slavery innocently, now on his way, finds himself in Egypt under the very uh, officer of the guard of Pharaoh. And so a pretty high-ranking officer. And then look with me and see, let's, let's take a look here what happens. Look at verses 2 through 3. Notice what this says. It says, although he had been sold into slavery, he's in Potiphar's house. Notice in verse 2, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of, the, of his Egyptian master. Verse 3, His master saw that the Lord was with him, and, the, at the, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so, although Joseph has now been innocently sold into slavery, he's now in the, in the house of Potiphar, all of a sudden, what happens? God shows up, right? God doesn't leave him. He doesn't forsake him, right? He doesn't leave him to this situation, but rather God steps into it. And what does he do? God lays his hand upon him and he makes everything he does successful. That God was with Joseph in the midst of some of the most unlikely of circumstances. When everything tells him that, man, this is what, what a mess am I in? God was with him and God made him successful. And then look at verses four through six. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, not for his sake, but for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the in-house and filled. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Potiphar has absolutely no concern for anything in his life except for food, for the food that he ate. All because of what? Because Joseph was in his house and because God had blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. And Joseph is in a place where he's having to trust God like no other. Right? He finds himself in a place where he's having to trust God, but but notice that, that God has a unique way of humbling us. As soon as we rise to the top, what happens? Yeah, man, well, we, we tank, don't we? And that's what we see right here in the life of Joseph. Um, because not only did Potiphar notice Joseph, not only did Potiphar notice that, Joseph's, that God's hand was on Joseph, but so did his wife. Right? And, and if you remember the story, uh, Potiphar's wife, tries, after several different meetings and appointments, she tries to sleep with, with Joseph. 
And Joseph does what? He flees. He flees, he flees, and he flees. And then one particular day, the text says, that she walks in and Joseph is by himself and there's nobody in the house. Boy, is that a recipe for disaster, right? And so she tries to sleep with him. And what does he do? He runs. He flees the temptation. But as he does, he grabs his jacket, and she, begin, or she begins to plot against Joseph and brings it to Potiphar. And all of a sudden, Joseph, who was the right-hand man of Potiphar, finds himself in prison. Why? Innocent. He's innocently charged of something that he didn't do. So Joseph was rising to the top quickly to find fame in Potiphar's house, all of a sudden to have the carpet pulled out from under him, and now he finds himself in prison for something that he didn't do. Joseph would have had every right at this point to give up and ask, why me, Lord? Why in the world? Two times innocent, yet here I am, I find myself in a place that it's not my home, and I'm stuck here in prison. But what does he do? Look in verses 21 through 23. This is God. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was, in, was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so here we are. We find ourselves again. He's hit rock bottom to find himself in prison. But what happens? God shows up. In everything in our lives, God is not absent. There's nothing in our lives that we find ourselves in a place that is too far from God's hand. I think of Psalm 139. You know, that there's no place that I can run. There's no place that you can run. There's no place that I can run that God's hand is not there. And we see this over and over in the life of uh, Joseph. We see it in our lives that God is always there. But by faith, we have to believe that he's there. See, Joseph had all the temptation in the world to go, God, you're giving up on me here. You've given up on me. I've innocently been placed in slavery. I've innocently been placed in uh, prison now. Yet you have not given up on me, and I'm going to trust you in these circumstances. And then suddenly we're going to see that Joseph's, the tide changes here a little bit for Joseph in in chapter 40. And so look at, at chapter 40. All of a sudden, Joseph has some visitors. Right? Joseph has uh, a couple of guys. Remember, he's been put in charge of everything. And two guys, two particular guys show up into Joseph's life. One happened to be Pharaoh's baker. The second happened to be the cupbearer. And ironically enough, Joseph, in his dreams, um, it's, it's kind of funny that one gets him thrown into a pit, and this one uh, has the potential of saving his life. <laughs> and so the baker and the cupbearer have this dream, and essentially what happens, what takes place is, is they're, they've got turmoil, turmoil over their dream, and they bring it before Joseph. And what is Joseph? How does Joseph respond to this? He says in verse 8, he says, Do not all interpretations belong to God. So Joseph, in this circumstance, gives credit to God and says, Well, hey, interpretations belong to God. I know God. I have faith. I'm believing in God in these circumstances. Why don't you tell me your dream and let me see if I can interpret it. Let's, let's let God give you an interpretation. And what happens? Well, he does. And so we learn in uh, the baker's life that his dream is that he's going to die in three days, that he's going to die for his, his, um, his uh, criminal activity, that, that Pharaoh's going to hang him. But then in the cupbearer's case, and this is the one that gets unique, right? The cupbearer finds out that he's actually going to be redeemed, and not only redeemed, but restored back to his rightful place in three days' time. 
And if you remember from Ted's sermon series back on Nehemiah, the cupbearer is the right-hand man of Pharaoh, of the king, right? You all remember that? That he is the most trusted man in his house. And so all Joseph does is he simply asks the cupbearer, he said, hey, listen, would you just do me a favor? I gave you this dream. You're going to get out. Would you just do me a favor and mention my name to Pharaoh? And what happens? He forgets. Yeah, isn't that a bummer? That's a bummer, right? Yeah, he completely forgot. So Joseph literally hands him his freedom, says, hey, this is what's going to take place. You know, all he asks is, would you please just remember me? And what happens? He forgets him. And so we move on to chapter 41. And look, with, look there in chapter 41. We're going to find out here that Joseph has now been in prison for two whole years. Two whole years this man has been innocently placed in prison, forgotten by the one man whom had really held his life together. And then this is where Joseph's life starts to, the tide starts changing for the better, right? Because what happens, what takes place in chapter 41 is that uh, Pharaoh, again, dreams. Pharaoh has this dream, and he's in turmoil over this dream, and he doesn't know what to think about this dream, right? And suddenly, he brings it before the cupbearer, and the cupbearer goes, man, it seems like, I, you know, there's this guy in prison a couple years ago, and... I mean, he, he was able to interpret my dream, and it turns out he was right. He was right for the baker, but not only for the baker, but he's also right for me. I bet he could interpret your dream as well. And so what happens? Pharaoh brings him into um, his house, ready for Joseph to um, actually, you know, interpret his dream. And then look in verse 16. Look at how Joseph answers this. It's one of the best verses in this story. Joseph says, Joseph answered, Pharaoh... It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You know, I find this to be interesting that Joseph trusted that God was going to come through in the very moment that he needed him most. You know, think about the faith that would have had to take place here. You know, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, brings Joseph into his chambers expecting a favorable answer. What would have happened if it wasn't favorable? What if Joseph would have said, man, you're going to die. There's going to be somebody's going to come in here, sweep this place. Everything you know is going to be ripped from your hands. What would happen to Joseph? I don't know if he'd have been going back to prison. I don't know if he'd have made it that far. You know, so when Joseph's life is on the line, what does he do? He trusts God. He didn't trust himself. He trusts God. He says that God is going to give him a favorable answer. He didn't say, I can't give you a favorable answer. I don't have this gift. This is God's gift given to me. And by you telling me this, I'm going to give you a favorable answer. And it's only by God's grace. So when his life and his freedom were on the line, when Joseph's life and his freedom were completely on the line, Joseph trusted that God was going to come through no matter what. And what does God do? God comes through. Yeah, absolutely. God comes through. What we're going to see later on is that Joseph interprets the dream. And what we find is that the dream is that there's going to be this huge famine that wipes through all of the land. It's going to be a seven-year famine. It's going to just devastate everybody. And in this dream, God not only gives Joseph the favorable answer and tells him what's going to take place, but he also gives him a plan for how it's going to take place. And so here you have Joseph, a prisoner, brought before the most powerful man in the world to give him an interpretation, but not only give him an interpretation, but then also 
to give him a plan for how in the world that he is going to preserve not only Pharaoh's life, but also all the people in Egypt, including Joseph's life. So we're, we're going from a far, this is a pretty far-fetched story. You're going from a 17-year-old boy, you know, who's the favorite son, thrown into a pit, into slavery, sent into prison, innocently accused, now standing before the most you know, powerful man of the world, only to find that God shows up and, and <laughs> I just, it just blows me away at how much he trusted that God was going to give him a favorable answer, that God was going to get him out of this bind. And look at verses 37 through 40 of chapter 41. This is just going to confirm what I've already said. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, and whom is the Spirit of God? Notice there what Pharaoh attributes to Joseph, that he has the Spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph, just moments before, was a prisoner. But in God's grand plan, he went from a prisoner to now being the most second man in charge of all of the land. Only second to Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt, all of it. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift, a hand, lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth, Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Aslan, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Think about all the time that passes through that. You know, Ken and I were talking about this the other day about, you know, it's easy to look at the story of these guys and think, man, they just had it so together right off the bat, right from the beginning. Yeah, but they really don't. I mean, there's a lot of time that passes through in each one of these guys' lives. Joseph was 17 when he was traded into slavery. He is now 30 years old. And you can imagine all the ups and downs that he experienced in that, that short, short time of his life. He was now 30 years old. And what we're going to find here in verses, really chapters 42 through 50, we're going to kind of summarize through the rest of this, is that it is by Pharaoh's hand putting him in charge that he's going to be reunited with his brothers. You guys remember that story? You remember that part where he's going to be reunited to his brothers? And what we're going to find, just to, to summarize this, is that the famine did in fact infect the entire land. That God's vision that he gave Joseph really did come true. But not only did the famine come true, but the famine is what's going to bring Joseph's brothers to Egypt. Right? And so the Lord, uh, or I'm sorry, so Jacob is going to send Joseph's, all of Joseph's brothers, the 11 brothers, he's going to send them into Egypt to do what? To get grain. Because the only place that had grain was in Egypt. And why is that? Because God had given Joseph a unique plan to preserve a people. He'd given him this unique plan that nobody else knew, only Joseph. And 
so, so Jacob get, hears word of this, sends his brothers into Egypt, and Joseph is going to meet his brothers for the very first time. And turn with me to chapter 45. And look how, you know, so Joseph's going to have several different meetings with his brothers. He's going to lord it over them a little bit, as you well know. Um, at this point, you know, he has every right to retaliate. And, I mean, it's because he's so powerful, he could do anything in the world he wanted to do. I mean, he can put them in slavery, I mean, he could have them killed, and it wouldn't have mattered. Right? And he has every right to do so. He had every right to do so. But look how Joseph responds. This is, again, after several meetings that he has had with his brothers. He finally reveals himself, and look, how, look at what he says in verse 5 of chapter 45. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not with you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of of all his house and the ruler of all the land of Egypt. Again, guys, Joseph had every reason to hate his brothers. But not only does he forgive them, but he develops, he has this unique perspective of reality, right? He has this unique perspective of reality that through all the ups and downs in Joseph's life, they weren't meaningless. That his time in slavery, his time in prison, his time in the house of Potiphar, his time in Egypt, all of those things were not meaningless. That they were for a point that they were perfectly crafted to preserve life. They were perfectly crafted for God's good and perfect design, not only for his life, but also for the very people of God to preserve life so that the the promise that God gave Abraham could be fulfilled in just years, years after that. If it wasn't for Joseph's life and his faith and steadfastness and holding on to that promise, we would not have a fulfilled promise. That it is by God's good and great design that he set up all of this. But Joseph had to trust that God was working through all those pieces together. Now, I thought of this illustration that, you know, it's, it's easy for us because we've got the whole book, right? But Joseph didn't have the whole book. All Joseph had was a page. And I think in our own lives that oftentimes it's easy for us to get really discouraged and, and down and in despair, especially even with all the stuff that's going on in the world, with all the stuff that's going on personally, the suffering that you may have in your life. It's easy because it's, it's easy just to look at that page. Because, guys, God can see the whole book. Not only can he see the whole book, but he's the author of the book. And I was thinking about the way Ken just wrote a book, and I was just thinking about... Um, you know, actually authoring a book and recognizing the fact that, you know, guys, every word and every sentence is put there for a specific purpose. That there's no word that's out of place. There's no sentence that's out of place in a paragraph. There's no paragraph that's out of place in a chapter. That everything is working together in order to have a distinct meaning, to have a thesis all the way through the book so that when we get to the ending, we understand what was going on in the life of this book that there's absolutely nothing in our lives that are meaningless, that everything counts. Joseph trusted and believed that God was working everything for his good, everything for not only his good, but the good of the people of, of Israel. And as we, approach, as we approach Joseph's death, which I think is probably the most pertinent aspect of this entire story is on his deathbed. Turn with me to chapter 50. 
in verses 19 through 20. Verse 19 says, But Joseph said to them, speaking, he's on his deathbed at this point, speaking to his brothers. His father, Jacob, has just passed away, and he says this, But Joseph said to them, to his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Perhaps one of the most amazing, amazing verses in the entire Bible. That what you mean for evil, what man means for evil, God means for good. His unique perspective was that God had used his life, his unique circumstances, to preserve life. To preserve life and fulfill the promise. He meant it for good. The author of Joseph's book was good. The author of Israel's book is good. The author of our book and our story is good. He's working all things together, Romans 8, 28, for the, for the good of those who love him. He's working all things for our good. But here, let's go back to that, the, the, the passage for uh, tonight, Hebrews eleven twenty two. Notice this. At the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. We see that here in 25 of Genesis 50. It says this, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So not only do we have that account, but we also have the account in Genesis that his desire was to be taken out of the land of Egypt. He had just spent all his, primarily the majority of his life in Egypt. And he says, no, this is not my home. My home is back in the promised land. You know, John MacArthur wrote this in his commentary on Hebrews, and I think it's so, so pertinent for the life of Joseph. He says this, Death is the acid test of faith. At death, the need for lying and deception is over. And what is said on a deathbed is usually believed. So it is with our testimony of faith. Not only is the need for hypocrisy and pretense over, but also it is extremely difficult to fake faith when you know that you are facing eternity. A dying man's faith is believable because a sham cannot stand the test. Like I mentioned before, to sum summarize that, what we say on our deathbed is more, more often than not the most important things about us. Why? Because there's absolutely no need at this point to fake anything. There's no need for pretense. There's no need for anything because you're looking down the barrel of eternity. There's no need to fake it. And I think that this is so pertinent to the life of Joseph as well. Why would Joseph have mentioned this in, the, in his very last words? Why would he have said, why wouldn't he have said, I love you? I mean, there's so many things that Joseph could have said here. But what does he say? I want you to take my bones back to the promised land. Because I think that's one of the most important things, if not the most important thing to Joseph at this point. At the end of his life, Joseph had looked at all the success that he had, but he wasn't content with it. Because remember, he was placed as the second in command of all of Israel, or all of Egypt. But he wasn't content with it. He was also second in command in all of Potiphar's house, but he wasn't content. He knew that God wasn't done, that God wasn't finished, that he, being God, still had work to be done. That God's promises were still left to be fulfilled, that God still needed to finish his work. Because this whole entire story is a story about God. 
about his faithfulness and about a man who's put in some extremely unordinary circumstances and how he trusted God through the ups and downs of his life and remained faithful. You know, his success could not match the riches found in the promises of God. You know, I think about that again as we see what's going on in the world. Because that all the stuff that we have in America, right, the American dream, let's just harp on that. You know, we've got all the stuff that we need. We, if, if we're really honest, my wife and I talk about this all the time. It's like, should you really buy that? Do you really need that? Well, the reality is, is no, I don't need anything. Do we? We want it. Why? Because they're not necessarily needs. But what we do, we fill our lives with all this stuff. We seek success, which there's nothing wrong with success. But the reality is, is that, guys, God has something bigger and better. He has something bigger and better for Joseph. He understood that God's plan was far greater, far bigger, far richer than he can ever imagine, that in his promise was, was where he found life. Because in our life, where we find life is in God's promise, knowing that Jesus is coming back, that's right. Yeah, right? Yeah. Knowing that, guys, that this is not, that, this is not all that there is, that there's so much more to this. I mean, I, it's easy for us to look at Nice. It's easy for us to look at tomorrow or whatever in the world's going to happen and go, man, are you serious? And be despaired. I mean, looking at the news is the most depressing thing in the world. Yeah, but the reality is, is that, guys, this isn't our home. That we have a home that's far greater. You know, in your discussion questions, you're going to have a question it talks about that Jesus comes in John 14 and says, man, I've gone, to, I've gone to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. That we've got this promise in vessels of clay, guys, that this is not all there is, that there's more to life, but we have to trust it and we have to believe it and allow that to bring us through the ups and downs of our lives. That's what Joseph did. And although he wasn't going to see the promised land, nor was he going to inherit it, he believed it was true. Man, we're not, we can't see heaven. We can't see our promised land. We can't see what's next. But we have to believe that it's true. We have to trust that it's true. He trusted God's promise, and he believed that although he was leaving this earth, God was going to raise up someone else to take his place, that he would take his people into the promised land. God was still not finished. He was still going to be working, even in the fact that he was, going, that he was leaving the earth. And so, guys, as I want to kind of land this plane here, I can't help but think, man, what are you living for? What am I living for? What does your life mean? And does your life count? Now, I think these are the questions that we have to wrestle with. These are the questions that I look at Joseph's life and I go, his life counted. His life meant something. What are you living for? Are you living for the success in Egypt? Are you living for, you know, the next promotion, the next buck, the biggest bank account, the next vacation? Are you living for those things? Are you living for that success? How do you define success? Or are you living for the promised land? Where's your heart? Is it in Egypt or is it at the right hand of God? You know, there's a verse, I can't even think of where it is, but it just hit, hit my head that, that the fullness of joy is at the right hand of the Lord. You have joy in your life? If you don't, it's probably chances are that you're not living for the promise, that you're living for the here and the now. You're living for the page and not the book. Is God using you for his purposes to bring about his promises? 
Or are you, are you, or is your life about your own plan and design? Remember, God used Joseph's life to preserve a people. Guys, are we not in the same business? Is God not using us to preserve life? That this treasure that we have in vessels of clay is the message that we have, is that not for the preservation of life? Is it not about a very promise that we know to be true? God, your li- guys, your life counts. Joseph recognized that his life counted, that every minute was being used by God's good design to preserve his people, but even more to fulfill his promise to his people. By faith, Joseph, through the ups and downs of his life, believed God's promises to be true, that this life was temporary, and that God's plan was far greater than his own. You can't summarize Joseph's life better than that, I don't think. That this life was temporary, Joseph's life was temporary, that there was a far greater design going on, there was something at play that he didn't know all the details, but he believed to be true. Going back to Hebrews 11.1, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. That is faith. Hoping for what we can't see, making it real, and believing it with all of our hearts, and holding on tightly, steadfastly, knowing that it's true. Guys, let me pray for you as you enter into discussion. God, we thank you for that you're in the business of preserving life. Thank you that you've preserved my life and my family's life, the life of these men in this room. God, there's many, many more people that you desire to preserve life for, but it takes our faith believing that, Lord, that you're about that to to compel us into motion, to propel us into your mission. God, thank you that you're not done, that there's a greater plan that's at play, that even amidst our circumstances that, that are despairing, they're nasty, but we know that, Lord, that there is not a single thing that is out of your control, that you're working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, thank you for that. Lord, I pray for these men as they um, enter into discussion that they would be challenged with their faith. They would look at the life of Joseph and, um, Lord, that they would be challenged that in the ups and downs of their life, that, that it's all about faith, believing that God's going to come through, that God's hand is on them, that he's not going to leave them, forsake them. God, would you show them that that's true tonight? And I just pray for great conversations. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.